What's going on, guys? Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Andrew Cushman from Vantage Point Acquisitions. Andrew is an extremely experienced real estate investor. He went full-time in 2007 as a flipper. All right, so a lot of people start that way as a flipper, but many of them don't make it to become full-time investors, and Andrew did, but he didn't stop there. He kept going, and in 2011, after the crash, he started buying large-scale multifamily real estate and became a syndicator. Over time, he has done over 1,800, that's 1,800 multifamily units and and built a significant portfolio. And today he's going to talk to us about a lot of his experiences in building that business. And we're also going to learn his stance on the market today, where we stand right now. A lot of people think that we're at the top and Andrew's going to tell us what he thinks about where we stand right now in uh, in the multifamily <laughs> world as as real estate investors as we are you know, getting more into 2020. Once again, thank you for tuning in. Without any further ado, here we go with Andrew Cushman from Vantage Point Acquisitions. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Happy to talk with you. You have a great track record. And just to break the fourth wall a little bit, we're talking on a Saturday at about a quarter after 4 p.m. So you are a warrior. But can you tell our listeners about your real estate investing background and, and what you do in your business. Yeah, I took the I took the standard route into real estate, got a chemical engineering degree. Uh, of course, I, I knew at the time that that was just a placeholder, something I could earn a decent income um, doing until I figured out what I really was going to do because I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I worked as an engineer for about seven and a half years. Uh, my wife and I figured out that flipping houses in Southern California was something that we could um, do and that, that would that would work for us as a business. So 2007, I uh, flipped our first one. I quit my job and went into flipping full time. My wife joined me about two years later. And then after, I was like 2009, we had a really good year. 2010, we had a really good year. And we said, this is great, but it's not going to last forever. What's going to be the next thing that's about to start a big up cycle and kind of said well you know all these people getting foreclosed on and everyone's credits ruined no one's going to be able to buy a house for the next seven to ten years but they got to live somewhere uh, and the economy is going to start growing at some point so yeah, that probably bodes well for apartments so uh, we went and found a mentor to learn that business from uh, bought our first property was uh, in 2011 was 92 units out in Georgia on the other side of the other side of the country and um, yeah, I've been doing apartments full time since then, done a little over 1800 units. And uh, that's what we do day in and day out now. So That's awesome. Thanks for the summary. You are a, definitely a veteran of real estate investing and especially multifamily real estate investing. And, you know, we're talking a little bit late in the cycle, so to speak, depending on who you ask. And I wanted to get your take on the state of the market right now. and you know, the deals you see people doing, what you're doing with your business and kind of where you stand on maybe the next uh, couple of years in, in the multifamily world. Yeah, you know, deals that I see people doing, I see a lot of deals that are being done because they can be done and not because they should be done. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot, a lot of capital chasing multifamily, both domestically and from out 
inside the country. Money raising has gotten a lot easier than it used to be. Um, so you have a lot of you know um, new uh, or newer uh, syndicators chasing deals, eager to get the first deal. And what that's leading to is, and also we, we've had anyone who's only been doing it four or five or six years has only experienced the up part of the cycle um, and, and not the down, down part of the cycle. And what I'm seeing is a lot of assumptions being baked into deals that at this late stage have a much lower chance of coming true, right? So five years ago, if you said, hey, I'm going to get rent growth of 3% for the next five years, well, that was a pretty good bet back then. At this point in the cycle, 10 years in, when, we, when we're having, you know, we're reaching some areas in particular are reaching problems with affordability, right? So people can't afford the apartments anymore. Um, the economy has been expanding for 10 years. You know, how likely is it that we're going to get market rent growth of 3% a year for the next five years or 10 years? It, it could happen, right? Um, but not so likely. So I see a lot of deals getting done that, you know, not necessarily for the right reasons or, or maybe incorrectly. But with that said, um, it is definitely not a time to just, you know, sit, sit on your hands and, and watch TV for the next two years, wait for you know, the next crash. It, it, cause, because then you'll just end up doing nothing, right? Um, you know, I, I remember talking to a guy four or five years ago who that's basically, he's like, you know, I'm out, it's too high, it's too hot, and I'm going to wait for the crash. Well, that was four and a half, five years ago, and he's missed a whole lot of gains in, in profitability. Um, so that just means, you know, now we have to change our strategy. And because, you know, there's no such thing as a bad market, just bad strategy. So now that what that means is being more selective about the markets that you go into, right? Only pick markets that will do okay in a recession where the main economic drivers won't be obliterated when we hit an economic soft spot. Uh, try to appeal to demographics that will survive a recession okay. Um, and, you know, there's, there, there's a, a lot of different just changes that, that you make. And, and then also it just takes a lot of discipline. It used to be... You know, you could look at 20 deals and buy one. Now it's 200 and you still might not buy one. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. you could you could win the bid, but the question is, is you know, are you going to hit your pro forma if you do that? Um, so it's just, it's different, different, uh, different strategy. And then also, um, you know, another reason to not just sit on the sidelines is there's going to be a soft spot or a dip at some point, but big, big picture, 10, 20, 30 year picture, the, the, the support and the growth and the tailwinds for multifamily are incredibly bullish and positive. Um, so, you know, yeah, there may be a dip along the way, but if you, you know, one of the beauties of real estate is if you can hold long enough, you can almost always win, right? And then the final point I would make too is expansions don't die of old age. Um, Australia has gone, I forget exactly, either 26 or 28 years without a recession. Um, I don't wow. know if we have the um, the fiscal and political discipline to do that here in the U.S., but it's possible. So, interesting. There's a lot in there, and you said about buying in markets that can weather economic storms. You know, you can. I'm certainly curious about where you're buying, but I'd like to really focus on the underlying principles that indicate to you that a market can weather an economic cycle. So what do you look for in a market when you're thinking about weathering a, a down cycle? Job growth and population growth are two big ones. And then uh, job growth, we want uh, a very diverse job base, right? So you can you can find out, say, so take uh, Midland, Midland, Odessa, Texas, right? It will go through incredible growth cycles when the price of oil is high because that market is almost completely dependent 
on oil and fracking and drilling and all that kind of stuff. When, so it can look fantastic. I mean, there, there were years where, you know, they had double digit rent growth and population growth and high, you know, jobs. No one, no, no one, you know, the oil workers didn't have places to live. They're living in campers and RVs. And so any apartment complex there was just doing amazing. And then the price of oil gets cut in half and mm -hmm. you can, you know, all of a sudden vacancy goes to 30%, um, prices drop, people are losing, losing properties to, to foreclosure. Um, you know, that's a kind of market that's not diverse and, uh, and, and has a lot of, you know, boom bust cycles and, and it has a lot of risk. A market that's going to typically do well in a recession would be places like Atlanta and Dallas where, the job base is very diverse. It's not dependent on any one industry um, or, or job base, right? So like where Midland Odessa is almost completely, and I'm not knocking Midland Odessa, that's actually, that's just a different strategy. Remember I just actually mentioned that before, right? So if you do, you time that right and you do your strategy right, there's a lot of money to be made there. But if you're looking to buy and hold, you know, it's a little bit different. So like Dallas and Atlanta, very diverse job bases. Uh, you've got you've got tech, you've got industry, you've got medical, uh, and then and on top of that, you have uh, above the national average job growth and population growth. So when a recession comes at some point, let's let, you know, and and job growth drops. If you're investing in a market that doesn't have job growth today, in the middle of a big boom. And then we hit a recession. Well, now it's going to go negative, right? But if you're investing in a market that's got uh, abnormally high job growth and it hits a soft spot, it's going to go instead of instead of going negative, it might just go to slightly positive or flat, right? So you're increasing the odds that you're still going to have an economy that supports your investments. Um, also, those big primary markets that I mentioned, you know, there's there's more liquidity in terms of being able to buy and sell. Uh, there's a bigger renter base. You typically, you know, if you're buying B and C class stuff, there's a lot of A class properties in those markets. And, and when times get tough, people move from A down to B. And then people also can move from B to C. And that's kind of the last rung in the ladder. Most people do everything they can to not go from C to D, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you're looking at, when, when we're looking at smaller markets, like not a Dallas, not an Atlanta, but maybe, you know, a little market that you know, haven't heard of, secondary tertiary market, we look for stuff that, again, um, is fairly recession independent, right? So that could be military, education, government, and healthcare. Uh, and we wouldn't want it to be all just, you know, like, for example, we try to stay away from, uh, you know, properties and towns that are overly reliant on military, not because the military is anything negative with that. It's just that if there's a huge deployment or they close that base or something like then you can be in, in, in a world of hurt. Right. Um, so, yeah. So we want to look at look at, at job bases that that are either likely to stay the same or even grow in, 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 da in a down economy. And again, medical is, you know, that's going to continue to go. We're, we're growing aging population, uh, higher education in a recession, more people tend to just go back to school, uh, military, you know, that's pretty consistent. And then, um, you know, government, government jobs, um, you know, like, so like places like, uh, for example, Columbia, South Carolina, it will not hit your list of boom towns, but at the same time, there's a lot of government jobs there and those tend to be pretty sticky. So. Okay. So when do you decide to stop looking at a good market? And the, and the reason I asked this question is because it's no secret that Dallas is very popular for multifamily investment right now. And there's a lot of 
underlying positive economic factors and all those great things that you just mentioned. But a lot of people, everybody knows about Dallas right now and the prices are high. So I don't know whether you're still looking at Dallas or not, but how do you decide when to maybe just put a market on the, the back burner, despite it being a good market, the prices are just too high there and we're going to focus our time elsewhere. That's an excellent point. And that gets to shifting strategy, right? So yeah, we've sold everything that we had in Dallas, Fort Worth, not because we believe it's a bad market. In fact, long-term, I think it's a great market, but because it's gotten so insanely competitive there that it was not a an effective use of our time to try to compete right so now there's some other syndicators and, and apartment buyers that i know uh and are friends with that basically you know live in that area and are super well connected they can still pry deals out of that super competitive mess and and they have they have a lot of um advantages that most of us won't have so they can still do that but you know that was a decision we made. So, you know, this is a good market, but the problem is everybody across the entire planet knows it and you're getting 20, 30, 40 offers on a property. So just because it's a good market doesn't mean people aren't overpaying. Right. Uh, and, and it also depends on what your goals are. If you're 1031 exchanging into a, a property that you're going to hold for 20 years, you know, it might not necessarily, might not necessarily matter if you overpay a little bit today, if you're just putting, you know, putting yourself into a really good market. But if you're taking other people's money and forming a syndication and investing it, and you're going to need to give that back in three, five, seven, or 10 years, then it becomes a lot more important about, you know, making sure you don't overpay, that you get a good basis in the property so that you have exit options if we get into a rough spot in two, three, five, you know, whatever kind of year. So yeah, so markets that I feel like they're good markets, but they're overheated and far time in terms of competition and pricing. I do, I will basically set it on the back burner and say, Hey, I may not may come back here at some point, but I'm going to look at other markets that exhibit the same qualities, but maybe aren't getting so much attention right now where I can be more competitive. What do you think about uh, debt strategy? Because the, the the debt is really one of the the biggest costs that we're going to pay, or there our our lender is our biggest investor, mm-hmm. and a lot of multifamily investors might be taking bridge loans, short term loans to acquire their property, fix it up, and then they refinance into a longer term note. And as of a couple days ago, as a recording, the Fed just dropped. Uh, rates again, but you can never predict the future there. You know, what do you think about debt strategy as we potentially, but not for sure, who knows, as we potentially approach a recession? How do you think about that? That's yeah, that's a very key piece because you know you've got to buy it the buy it right, you got to put the right debt on it, and you got to operate it right, and that's how you have a, a successful multifamily investment. So, you know. A lot of us in the last three, four years thought we were really smart to put on uh, long-term 10, 12-year Fannie debt because, hey, interest rates are supposed to go up and this will be assumable. And Well, you know, that did not work out so well because interest rates are down. And now all these these Fannie and Freddie loans, if you want to if you want to pay it off, um, then there's a huge yield maintenance or prepayment penalty on these things. Right. Um, and so that actually has not worked out as you know, it would have been better off to do bridge or, flo- or floating rate loans a few years ago. At this point in the cycle, it, you know, again, it really depends on what your plan 
for the property is. You know, if you're definitely going to hold for 10 years, then it might make sense to go ahead and just get that 10 year debt. But if you're going to, if you're looking at a three or five year, then locking in 10 year debt could actually end up, um, you know, coming, coming back to haunt you. And so really the key is, is less the type of debt um, and more so the amount of leverage, right? So we actually are going back to strongly considering bridge loans on a lot of properties. But when we're doing it, we're looking at, you know, a little bit lower leverage, like 65, 70, maybe 75% of cost, because then you have options, right? So, you know, really, you know, everyone's concerned about a recession. Well, what are interest rates doing in a recession? Typically they drop and they drop significantly, right? So if we're, if you're thinking, Hey, there's a recession in three years, well, then it would make sense to put floating rate or bridge loan on the property with the assumption that, well, if we're in a recession, interest rates are going to be lower and I can refinance into a lower rate or sell without a massive prepayment penalty. And so the key to being able to do that is to not over leverage, right? So if, if you go into a property right now with a you know, 100%, 90% leverage or some really high leverage point, that's where you could get into trouble if three, four, five years down the road, the valuation's not there. So you can't sell, you can't refinance, right? Okay, maybe interest rates go up. You know, they tend to do what everyone doesn't think they're going to do. So interest rates are higher, right? Well, if you came in with really high leverage, you might have trouble refinancing out. Whereas if you go into it with lower leverage, then you still have the option of, well, okay, the interest rates are up a little bit, but that's okay because I'm only trying to get to, you know, a low, a fairly low LTV. Um, you know, or same thing, you want to do a cash out re refinance, go from that bridge to that agency debt, you know, and the agencies might, you know, for example, the agency is completely locked up for about two months, um, you know, late this summer, they kind of hit their caps and they just, they basically stopped lending. Um, and it was great. And in one sense it was great because where we everyone was kind of really concerned, but all the, the non-agency lenders stepped in and filled the gap. So it was a sign that the market is super healthy on the debt side. But that may not always be the case, right? So if Fannie, if you know, if you, it's just if it's your turn to to refinance or sell a property, and let's say the mar the finance market is tight, you might need to do a loan at only seventy percent and not eighty percent on when you go to refinance. And so if you went in with that lower leverage, um, then you'll be okay. So that's you know, so it's not it's, so you got to match the the debt with the time frame of your property. Um, and whether you're going to refinance or sell, when you're going to do that, and then a little bit of, well, what do you think the market's going to do? Is it going to, um, you know, go, we're going to have hit a soft spot or rates going to be up, going to be down? You know, for rates, you know, there'll definitely be spikes along the way, but for the next five to 10 years, it's tough to envision an environment where they're dramatically higher unless there's some kind of black swan, you know, event or something, something that, you know, is just, would completely out of left field, which is usually what happens. So. <laughs> if you if you listen to Peter Schiff, then you know he'll tell you exactly why rates are going to go flying upward. But that might be a, a discussion for another day. So. Yeah, he's predicted like twenty out of the last three recessions. But <laughs> no, and you know, at, at some point, at some point, it, it we're we're definitely not on a sustainable path, um, big you know, long term. But for the next five to ten years, we have a globalization and a deflationary a lot of deflationary rate you know pressures around the world so um yeah it'll be interesting that's why again the big thing is no one really knows so plan multiple exit options yeah yeah absolutely so i'd like to get a more of your perspective 
on what you've learned from watching your passive investors, watching the investors in your deals go through their process. You know, both they probably invest with you and other syndicators. That's typically what I see is uh -huh. people passive, passively invest in a number of syndicators deals. So what are some things that you've kind of learned along the way that separate, you know, the best performing or the most successful passive investors from the less successful investors? Because there's got to be some kind of, uh, I don't want to say hierarchy, but, but a ranking of people who find the best operators, find the best deals and earn the best returns passively compared to people who, who don't do quite as well. So what have you observed in that regard? Yeah, the most successful ones are the ones that take the time to understand what they're getting into and who they're getting into it with. Um, and that doesn't mean they have to understand every nook and cranny of the business, right? Because that's, in fact, you shouldn't. That, that's why you're a passive investor. You know, you're, you, you're not looking to you know, hunt deals full time, um, you know, all day long. You may have, you may be a successful doctor, dentist, engineer, whatever, right? But they, you, but you still have to have a, a basic understanding of what you're looking at so that you can look at a deal that someone sent you and be like, okay, these assumptions are a little too rosy. Um, or, you know, um, you know, that return seems a little bit higher than what's kind of standard for the market today, right? So, and then be able to ask questions about things like, you know, rent increases or expenses or just, just have a kind of a basic um, operating knowledge. And the other one, yeah, is definitely get to know your sponsor a little bit. Um, most sponsors or syndicators that are, you know, following SEC regulations um, are going to you you know want to have at least a short conversation with you as a as a passive investor, um, and you know because really when it comes down to it, it's it's less about the deal and more about the sponsor or the operator because a a bad sponsor can make the best deal go bad, right? But a really good sponsor can make a bad deal still turn out okay, um, and so there's there there's 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 operational skill, market knowledge, and then there's also are they, you know, a trustworthy, honest, ethical person. And there's no, um, there's no five point quiz for that, right? You just got to ask the right questions, get to know them a little bit, ask for other investor references, people who invested with them. Um, and then, you know, talk, actually talk to those references. And then if you want, ask those references and say, hey, who else do you know, right? Because then you're going to get a reference that wasn't handed to you by the guy that you're, taught, that you're trying to find out about. You know that that second level of reference is going to be, um, uh, you know, a, a very, you know, just a candid one. So. Interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, that uh, ask the referee or or ask that first level of reference for a second level of reference and and they might dig something up for you that uh the sponsor might not wanted it might not have wanted to to tell you about yeah right. yep exactly yeah cool we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor okay andrew i have three questions i ask every guest on the show are you ready let's do it all right. What is the best investment that you've ever made? You know, I mean, we, we, we've, we've had plenty of deals where we sold them for, you know, I mean, bought, you know, sold them for two or three times what we paid for them. But yeah, I'm going to say my best deal was the very first apartment 
apartment complex that we did because you know it was it certainly wasn't the most profitable. Uh, we made a grip load of mistakes, and the that was probably the most stressful six months of my life. But uh, we learned a tremendous amount. A lot of the best practices that we have now came out of the mistakes that we made, you know, then by sitting down and saying, okay, like, let's not repeat that. How do we, you know, how do we, not, <laughs> how do we not do that again? How do we make it better? What kind of process do we need to create? And then, you know, and it, and it did end up, I mean, it did end up still being profitable. We, we sold it for, uh, gosh, two and a half times what we bought it for, but we had to put a lot into it. So, it, you know, I think we only made like a 30% profit, but without that first deal, you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking, right? So my best deal was that first one because we proved to our investors that even when a bunch of stuff goes wrong, we're still committed to dealing with it and fixing it. And we still, we still, you know, wrung a profit out of that thing. And then, you know, once you do, once we do, once you do the first deal, it's the second one gets a lot easier. And then the third, but getting to the, through that first one is the, the biggest hurdle. And it's the toughest thing to do, especially if you're going from zero to a hundred, which is, which is what we did. Um, so yeah, I'd say that the best one is the first one, not because it was the biggest financial success because it was the start of the business. Nice. I like that a lot. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment that you've ever made? Interestingly enough, it was a syndication. And uh, this was part of what drove my wife and I to, to bet on ourselves. And, and is back in, I want to say 2005 or 2006, um, somebody where I worked said, oh, hey, I'm investing in this, in this deal where they're, they're buying golf courses and developing houses in the Carolinas or whatever, right? And like they're selling, they're selling shares, and then the, and it was kind of a hybrid thing, right? They're like they're selling selling shares in the LLC, and then they're going to go public with it, right? And they're going to they're listed on the Nasdaq, and the value is wow. going to go from like three to twenty one, right? And so you know, and they had some pretty pictures and some plans, and they had an office in in Irvine, which is down here in Southern California. And so I didn't go to the office. A friend of mine did, and he's like, "Yeah, it looks pretty good." And so we I mean, we we did not really look into it anywhere near as deep as we should have. And there were red flags that I'm like, hmm, but you know, the, the greed kind of overtook um, and, and I ignored the red flags. And so we invested some money into this. And I remember I kept seeing more red flags and literally the day before I was going to call and request my money back, the SEC came in, shut the whole thing down, froze all the accounts. And then after like three or four years of um, the SEC litigating, I think we ended up getting like 15% of our money back. Oh. So that was that was an example of not vetting your sponsor and ignoring uh, your gut and ignoring red flags. And that's, that's the worst uh, real estate related investment I've ever made. Wow, wow. I know of some people who are doing something very, very similar to that here in Virginia, uh, in the Lynchburg area in that time frame, and I know it didn't work out. I don't know the specific deal uh, details, but um, it, it, it didn't work out. So <laughs> I think there are quite a few people trying to do that, uh, that type of a deal uh, up and down the yeah. coast. Well, and these guys, these guys weren't even, they, it wasn't just that, you know, it wasn't like, oh, they did bad deals and they messed up. They, it was literally a, a hybrid Ponzi scheme. Like they had Ooh. a few, they had a few deals to make it look legit, but 
they're basically bringing in new investors to pay off old ones and you know, all that kind of stuff. So interesting. Well, that's no good. Got to watch out for the Ponzi schemes. My favorite question at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? Relentless persistence. You know, when, when I was an engineer trying to get into single family home flipping, at the time, pre-foreclosures were spiking. And so we went, you know, how we were trying to flip houses is to reach out to people in pre-foreclosure, see if there's any way we could help them not get foreclosed on. And then if there was no other option, we, we could buy that house from them, right? So that involved me cold calling people, which I was not good at. I was an engineer. So it took 4,576 phone calls before Whoa. we got our first deal, right? Uh, and then once, you know, so, and then that, that started the flipping business. And then when we bought the, the, the 92 unit, our first apartment complex, that was, that ended up being absolutely brutal. Uh, it took us almost six months to, you know, that was back, you know, we were just coming out of the recession. People weren't, people were still afraid and terrified of real estate. Um, it was hard to raise $1.2 million to go buy that thing even though we had a fairly decent network. And so that took incredible persistence. Um, the, the waterfall of problems and challenges we came across with that property, it, you know, relentless, just persisting and pushing through. How do we solve this? How do we fix it? Um, how do we make the most of the dollars that we have? And then, you know, so we had to come out of that deal years later at a, with, and actually have a nice property that was, you know, paying dividends and then we sold at a good profit. So just relentless persistence um, to to continue through. And especially to, with today's hot market, you, it takes, you gotta, you gotta look at a lot, a lot, a lot of deals to find one that's decent, so. Wow, relentless persistence. I like that a lot. That makes a lot of sense. And it that's a, just an impressive number <laughs> of phone calls to make to get that deal. So uh, that's a great example that you set for us there. So if, uh, and, and thank you for all the lessons today. If people want to learn more about you, more about your business, all that, where can they get in touch with you? You know, I'm on LinkedIn and Bigger Pockets, but to actually to really get in touch with me, the best thing to do is um, just on our website, there's a contact us form, you know, or, or button and click that and just fill a little, a couple things out, go straight to my inbox. Uh, it's just Vantage Point Acquisitions and the, the, the web address is V short for Vantage, P as in point, and then ACQ, short for acquisitions.com. And yeah, feel free to reach out and uh, hopefully we can connect. Awesome. And the link will be in the show notes too for anybody that missed it and doesn't feel like uh, like rewinding. So once again, thank you for everything today. I definitely appreciate all of your insight into the changes in the market and especially uh, the, the discussion about the thought process about debt was definitely uh, very illuminating as well. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. All right. Glad to be here. Take care. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It'd be a very big help. If you know anyone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. Once again, have a great day, have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you on the next episode of Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Bye-bye.